Hey everyone, Joe here with the Modern Heathen Man. I'm here with my wife Kelly today. Hello. And today being Tears Day means that it is story time. Today in our stories from Padre Colum's Children of Odin, we're going to go to section 13, 14 to 15. Section 13 is about Thor. Section 14 is about dwarves. And section 15 is about witches. So it should be some interesting listening today. I hope you enjoy this. If you guys wish to contact me, please go ahead and contact me at my email at modernheathenman at gmail.com or on the Facebook Modern Heathen Man um, page. You can go on there and contact me as well. Let me know what you'd like to hear, what you'd like to see on the, the show, and we'll make sure we go ahead and put that on there for you. Um, do you want anything, Kelly? Not today. I think I'm good today. All right, I want to wish you all a happy Tears Day. And without any further ado, listen to some stories today. Thanks, guys. Hey guys, Joe here from Modern Heathen Man. I wanted to tell you about this great new place that I found. It's a really safe place for heathens of all walks. Um, it's called the International Satru Foundation. They have their own social network platform called the Roots of Yggdrasil. And the International Satru Foundation is an organization that is dedicated to the preservation, growth, and advancement of Germanic paganism. They build networks, share knowledge, and gather in pursuit of common goals. As an organization, they operate at the kindred level and encourage you to explore and ask questions throughout that time frame. Their vision is easy. It's heathens from every walk of life working together for a common goal, the reveal and continued practice of Germanic paganism for everyone worldwide. The things that they're doing are really exciting. They strive to help you understand heathenry better and the different paths of heathenry and Germanic paganism. They educate the public about the faith, they gather to share knowledge, build reputable resources for learning, and work towards common goals set by the community itself. They're working on starting a whole school program to make very good educated Gothi, and working on a program specifically for our warriors. Everyone is free to walk their paths as he or she wills, but I'm telling you, this is the greatest place to go. It's a safe haven for heathens. If you're tired of all that Facebook banter and getting banned and going to Facebook jail all the time, they have their own social media network where you're safe to talk about heathenry all day long with other heathens. They're really specific on who they let in there, and it's only heathens talking with heathens. That's all there is to it. So go ahead and check it out. Their address is asatru.org with the real spelling with the hashtags above the A and the U. So make sure to go ahead and check them out, and uh, hopefully we'll see you join there, the International Satru Foundation. Thanks, guys. Section 13 of The Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin, The Book of Northern Myths, by Parik Kolum. Part 2. Chapter 7. Egir's Feast. How Thor Triumphed. The time between midday and evening wore on while the Aesir and the Vanir gathered for the feast in old Egir's hall, listened to the stories that Loki told in mockery of Thor. The night came, but no banquet was made ready for the dwellers in Asgard. 
they called to Egir's two under-servants, Fima Fengir and Elder, and they bade them bring them a supper. Slight was what they got, but they went to bed, saying, Great must be the preparations that old Egir is making to feast us to-morrow. The morrow came, and the midday of the morrow, and still the dwellers in Asgard saw no preparations being made for the banquet. Then Frey rose up and went to seek old Egir, the giant king of the sea. He found him sitting with bowed head in his inner hall. "'Ho, Egir,' he said, "'what of the banquet that you have offered to the dwellers in Asgard?' Old Egir mumbled and pulled at his beard. At last he looked his guest in the face and told why the banquet was not being made ready. The mead for the feast was not yet brewed, and there was little chance of being able to brew mead that would do for all, for Egir's hall was lacking a mead-kettle that would contain enough. When the Aesir and the Vanir heard this they were sorely disappointed. Who now outside of Asgard would give them a feast? Egir was the only one of the giants who was friendly to them, and Egir could not give them full entertainment. Then a giant youth who was there spoke up and said, My kinsman, the giant Hrymer, has a mead kettle that is a mile wide. If we could bring Hrymer's kettle here, what a feast we might have! One of us can go for that kettle, Frey said. Ah, but Hrymer's dwelling is beyond the deepest forest and behind the highest mountain, the giant youth said, and Hrymer himself is a rough and a churlish one to call on. Still one of us should go. Frey said. "'I will go to Hymer's dwelling,' said Thor, standing up. "'I will go to Hymer's dwelling and get the mile-wide kettle from him by force or cunning.' He had been sitting subdued under the mocking tales that Loki told of him, and he was pleased with this chance to make his prowess plain to the Aesir and the Vanir. He buckled on the belt that doubled his strength, he drew on the iron gloves that enabled him to grasp Mjolnir, he took his hammer in his hands, and he signed to the giant youth to come with him and be his guide. The Aesir and the Vanir applauded Thor as he stepped out of old Aegir's hall, but Loki, mischievous Loki, threw a gibe after him. "'Do not let the hammer out of your hands this time, bride of Thrym!' he shouted. Thor, with the giant youth to guide him, went through the deepest forest and over the highest mountain. He came at last to the giant's dwelling. On a hillock before Hrymer's house was a dreadful warden. A giant crone she was, with heads a-many growing out of her shoulders. She was squatting down on her ankles, and her heads, growing in bunches, were looking in different directions. As Thor and the giant youth came near, screams and yelps came from all her heads. Thor grasped his hammer, and would have flung it at her, if a giant woman, making a sign of peace, had not come to the door of the dwelling. The youthful giant who was with Thor greeted her as his mother. "'Son, come within,' said she, "'and you may bring your fellow-fare with you.' The giant crone—she was Hrymer's grandmother—kept up her screaming and yelping, but Thor went past her and into the giant's dwelling. When she saw that it was one of the dwellers in Asgard who had come with her son, the giant woman grew fearful for them both. "'Hrymer,' she said, will be in a rage to find one of the Aesir under his roof. He will strive to slay you." "'It is not likely he will succeed,' Thor said, grasping Mjolnir, the hammer that all the giant race knew of and dreaded. "'Hide from him,' said the giant woman. "'He may injure my son in his rage to find you here.' 
I am not wont to hide from the giants, Thor said. Hide only for a little while, hide until Hrymer has eaten, the giant woman pleaded. He comes back from the chase in a stormy temper. After he is eaten he is easier to deal with. Hide until he has finished supper. Thor at last agreed to do this. He and the giant youth hid behind a pillar in the hall. They were barely hidden when they heard the clatter of the giant's step as he came through the courtyard. He came to the door. His beard was like a frozen forest around his mouth, and he dragged along with him a wild bull that he had captured in the chase. So proud was he of his capture that he dragged it into the hall. "'I have taken alive,' he shouted, the bull with the mightiest head and horns. Heaven-breaking, this bull is called. No giant but me could capture it." He tied the bull to the post of the door, and then his eyes went toward the pillar behind which Thor and the giant youth were hiding. The pillar split up its whole length at that look from Hrymer's eyes. He came nearer. The pillar of stone broke across. It fell with the cross-beam it supported, and all the kettles and cauldrons that were hanging on the beam came down with a terrible rattle. Then Thor stepped out and faced the wrathful giant. "'It is I who am here, friend Hrymer,' he said, his hands resting on his hammer. Then Hrymer, who knew Thor and knew the force of Thor's hammer, drew back. "'Now that you are in my house, Asa Thor,' he said, "'I will not quarrel with you. Make supper ready for Asa Thor and your son and myself,' said he to the giant woman. A plentiful supper was spread and Hrymer and Thor and the giant youth sat down to three whole roast oxen. Thor ate the whole of one ox, Hrymer, who had eaten nearly two himself, leaving only small cuts for his wife and his youthful kinsmen, grumbled at Thor's appetite. "'You'll clear my fields, Asa Thor,' he said, "'if you stay long with me.' "'Do not grumble, Hrymer,' Thor said. "'Tomorrow I'll go fishing and I'll bring you back the weight of what I ate.' Then instead of hunting I'll go fishing with you to-morrow, Asa Thor," said Hrymer, and don't be frightened if I take you out on a rough sea. Hrymer was first out of bed the next morning. He came with the pole and the ropes in his hand to where Thor was sleeping. "'Time to start earning your meal, Asa Thor,' said he. Thor got out of bed, and when they were both in the courtyard the giant said, "'You'll have to provide a bait for yourself. Mind that you take a bait large enough. It is not where the little fishes are, the place where I'm going to take you. If you never saw monsters before, you'll see them now. I'm glad, Asa Thor, that you spoke of going fishing." "'Will this bait be big enough?' said Thor, laying his hands on the horns of the bull that Hrymer had captured and brought home, the bull with the mighty head of horns that was called Heaven-breaking. "'Will this bait be big enough, do you think?' "'Yes, if you are big enough to handle it,' said the giant. Thor said nothing, but he struck the bull full in the middle of the forehead with his fist. The great creature fell down dead. Thor then twisted the bull's head off. "'I have my bait, and I'm ready to go with you, Hrymer,' he said. Hrymer had turned away to hide the rage he was in at seeing Thor do such a feat. He walked down to the boat without speaking. "'You may row for the first few strokes,' said Hrymer when they were in the boat. But when we come to where the ocean is rough, why, I'll take the oars from you." Without saying a word Thor made a few strokes that took the boat out into the middle of the ocean. Hrymer was in a rage to think that he could not show himself greater than Thor. He let out his line and began to fish. Soon he felt something huge on his hook. The boat rocked and rocked till Thor steadied it. 
Then Hrymer drew into the boat the largest whale that was in these seas. "'Good fishing,' said Thor, as he put his own bait on the line. "'It's something for you to tell the Aesir,' said Hrymer. "'I thought as you were here I'd show you something bigger than salmon-fishing.' "'I'll try my luck now,' said Thor. He threw out a line that had at the end of it the mighty-horned head of the great bull. Down, down the head went. It passed where the whales swim, and the whales were afraid to gulp at the mighty horns. Down, down it went, till it came near where the monster serpent that coils itself round the world abides. It reared its head up from its serpent coils as Thor's bait came down through the depths of the ocean. It gulped at the head and drew it into its gullet. There the great hook stuck. Terribly surprised was the serpent monster. It lashed the ocean into a fury. But still the hook stayed. Then it strove to draw down to the depths of the ocean the boat of those who had hooked it. Thor put his legs across the boat and stretched them till they touched the bottom bed of the ocean. On the bottom bed of the ocean Thor stood and he pulled and he pulled on his line. The serpent monster lashed the ocean into fiercer and fiercer storms, and all the world's ships were hurled against each other and wrecked and tossed. But it had to loosen coil after coil of the coils it makes around the world. Thor pulled and pulled. Then the terrible head of the serpent monster appeared above the waters. It reared over the boat that Hrymer sat in and that Thor straddled across. Thor dropped the line and took up Mjolnir, his mighty hammer. He raised it to strike the head of the serpent monster, whose coils go round the world. But Hrymer would not have that happen. Rather than have Thor pass him by such a feat, he cut the line, and the head of the serpent monster sank back into the sea. Thor's hammer was raised. He hurled it, hurled that hammer that always came back to his hand. It followed the sinking head through fathom after fathom of the ocean deep. It struck the serpent monster a blow but not such a deadly blow as would have been struck if the water had not come between. A bellow of pain came up from the depths of the ocean, such a bellow of pain that all in Jotunheim were affrighted. "'This surely is something to tell the Aesir of,' said Thor, "'something to make them forget Loki's mockeries.' Without speaking Hrymer turned the boat and rowed toward the shore, dragging the whale in the wake. He was in such a rage to think that one of the Aesir had done a feat surpassing his that he would not speak. At supper, too, he remained silent, but Thor talked for two, boasting loudly of his triumph over the monster serpent. "'No doubt you think yourself very powerful, Asa Thor,' Hrymer said at last. "'Well, do you think you are powerful enough to break the cup that is before you?' Thor took up the cup, and with a laugh he hurled it against the stone pillar of the house. The cup fell down on the floor without a crack or a dint in it, but the pillar was shattered with the blow. The giant laughed. "'So feeble are the folk of Asgard,' he said. Thor took up the cup again and flung it with greater force against the stone pillar. And again the cup fell to the ground without a crack or a dint. Then he heard the woman who was the mother of the giant youth sing softly as she plied her wheel behind him. Not at the pillar of the stead, but at Hrymer's massy head, when you next the goblet throw, let his head receive the blow. Thor took up the cup again. He flung it not at the pillar this time, but at Hrymer's head. It struck the giant full on the forehead, and fell down on the floor in pieces, and Hrymer's head was left without a dint 
or a crack. Ha! So you can break a cup, but can you lift up my mile-wide kettle? cried the giant. Show me where your mile-wide kettle is, and I shall try to lift it, cried Thor. The giant took up the flooring and showed him the mile-wide kettle down in the cellar. Thor stooped up and took the kettle by the brim. He lifted it slowly, as if with a mighty effort. "'You can lift, but can you carry it?' said the giant. "'I will try to do that,' said Thor. He lifted the kettle up and placed it on his head. He strode to the door and out of the house before the giant could lay hands on him. Then when he was outside he started to run. He was across the mountain before he looked behind him. He heard a yelping and a screaming, and he saw the giant crone with the bunch of heads running, running after him. Up hill and down dale Thor raced, the mile-wide kettle on his head, and the giant crone in chase of him. Through the deep forest he ran, and over the high mountain, but still bunch of heads kept him in chase. But at last, jumping over a lake, she fell in, and Thor was free of his pursuer. And so back to the Aesir and the Vanir Thor came in triumph, carrying on his head the mile-wide kettle. And those of the Aesir and the Vanir who had laughed most at Loki's mockeries rose up and cheered for him as he came in. The mead was brewed, the feast was spread, and the greatest banquet that ever the kings of the giants gave to the dwellers in Asgard was eaten in gladness. A strange and silent figure sat at the banquet. It was the figure of a giant, and no one knew who he was, nor where he had come from. But when the banquet was ended, Odin, the eldest of the gods, turned toward this figure and said, O Skirmir, giant king of Utgard, rise up now and tell Thor of all you practiced upon him when he and Loki came to your city. Then the stranger at the banquet stood up, and Thor and Loki saw he was the giant king in whose halls they had had the contests. Skirmir turned toward them and said, O Thor, and O Loki, I will reveal to you now the deceits I practiced on you both. It was I whom ye met on the moorland on the day before ye came into Utgard. I gave you my name as Skirmir, and I did all I might do to prevent your entering our city, for the giants dreaded a contest of strength with Atsa Thor. Now hear me, O Thor. The wallet I gave for you to take provisions out of was tied with magic knots. No one could undo them by strength or cleverness. And while you were striving to undo them, I placed a mountain of rock between myself and you. The hammer-blows, which as you thought struck me, struck the mountain and made great clefts and gaps in it. When I knew the strength of your tremendous blows I was more and more in dread of your coming into our city. I saw you would have to be deceived by magic. Your lad Thjalfi was the one whom I first deceived. For it was not a giant youth who raced against him, but thought itself. And even you, O Loki, I deceived, for when you tried to make yourself out the greatest of eaters, I pitted against you, not a giant, but fire that devours everything. You, Thor, were deceived in all the contests. After you had taken the drinking horn in your hands we were all affrighted to see how much you were able to gulp down, for the end of that horn was in the sea, and Aegir, who is here, can tell you that after you had drunk from it the level of the sea went down. The cat whom you strove to lift was Nidhogg, the dragon that gnaws at the roots of Yggdrasil, the tree of trees. Truly we were terrified when we saw that you made Nidhogg budge. When you made the back of the cat reach the roof of our palace we said to ourselves, Thor is the mightiest of all the beings we have known. Lastly, 
you strove with the hag Ellie. Her strength seemed marvellous to you, and you thought yourself disgraced because you could not throw her. But know, Thor, that Ellie whom you wrestled with was old age herself. We were terrified again to see that she who can overthrow all was not able to force you prone upon the ground." So Skimir spoke, and then left the hall. And once more the Aesir and the Vanir stood up and cheered for Thor, the strongest of all who guarded Asgard. End of section 13 Hey guys, Joe here from the Modern Heathen Man. How are you guys tonight? I hope I'm meeting you well. Anyway, I wanted to tell you guys, while I'm out traveling, it's not always feasible to carry my whole big altar box with me. So sometimes I like a little something in my pocket. And I found a great place to get that from. That's Odin's Beard Woodworking. Great little place out there. It makes small little pocket altars for you with candles and um, gods and everything in them, little sayings and such wonderful work that this man does carves everything by hand he has a couple things going on here he has little pocket altars that i'm talking about for 25 dollars he has small dd poles of five to six inches for 40 dollars seven to eight inches for 45 9 to 10 for 50 and 11 to 12 for 60. he has 26 different deities to choose from and more coming every day your choices right now are odin thor Tyr, loki freyr Balder, Bragi, Hamdal, Njord, Fenrir, Ullr, Vidar, Hermod, Hel, Freya, Ostri, Skadi, Sif, Er, Frigg, Var, Thrud, Idun, Sigun, Ran, and Jord. That's a lot of different gods to choose from. So you can meet anybody's needs. Tell them what you want. You can go ahead and find him at www.odinsbeard.com woodworking.com he also has a facebook page and i know he does some stuff live every once in a while that you can actually watch him carve those things anyway give him a good uh, look see there and see if he has something that you can use i guarantee his little pocket ultras will come in handy for you so anyway thanks guys have a great night bye bye section 14 of the children of odin this librivox recording is in the public domain Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin, The Book of Northern Myths, by Parik Kolum. Part Two, Chapter Eight The Dwarf's Horde, and the Curse that it Brought. Now old Aegir's feast was over, and all the Aesir and the Vanir made ready for their return to Asgard. Two only went on another way Odin, the eldest of the gods, and Loki, the mischievous. Loki and Odin laid aside all that they had kept of the divine power and the divine strength. They were going into the world of men, and they would be as men, merely. Together they went through Midgard, mingling with men of all sorts, kings and farmers, outlaws and true men, warriors and householders, thralls and counsellors, courteous men, and men who were ill-mannered. One day they came to the bank of a mighty river, and there they rested 
listening to the beat of iron upon iron in a place nearby. Presently on a rock in the middle of the river they saw an otter come. The otter went into the water and came back to the rock with a catch of salmon. He devoured it there. Then Odin saw Loki do a senseless and an evil thing. Taking up a great stone, he flung it at the otter. The stone struck the beast on the skull, and knocked him over dead. "'Loki! Loki! Why hast thou done a thing so senseless and so evil?' Odin said. Loki only laughed. He swam across the water and came back with the creature of the river. "'Why didst thou take the life of the beast?' Odin said. "'The mischief in me made me do it,' said Loki. He drew out his knife, and ripping the otter up he began to flay him. When the skin was off the beast he folded it up and stuck it in his belt. Then Odin and he left that place by the river. They came to a house with two smithies beside it, and from the smithies came the sound of iron beating upon iron. They went within the house and they asked that they might eat there and rest themselves. An old man who was cooking fish over a fire pointed out a bench to them. "'Rest there,' said he, "'and when the fish is cooked I will give you something good to eat. My son is a fine fisher, and he brings me salmon of the best." Odin and Loki sat on the bench, and the old man went on with his cooking. "'My name is Hreidmar,' he said, "'and I have two sons who work in the smithies without. I have a third son also. It is he who does the fishing for us. And who may ye be, O wayfaring men?' Loki and Odin gave names to Hreidmar that were not the names by which they were known in Asgard or on Midgard. Hreidmar served fish to them, and they ate. "'And what adventures have ye met upon your travels?' Hreidmar asked. "'Few folk come this way to tell me of happenings.' "'I killed an otter with a cast of a stone,' Loki said with a laugh. "'You killed an otter?' Hreidmar cried. "'Where did you kill one?' "'Where I killed him is of no import to you, old man,' said Loki. "'His skin is a good one, however. I have it at my belt.' Hreidmar snatched the skin out of Loki's belt. As soon as he held the skin before his eyes, he shrieked out, "'Fafnir! Regan! My sons! Come here and bring the thralls of your smithies! Come! Come! Come!' "'Why dost thou make such an outcry, old man?' said Odin. "'Ye have slain my son Otter!' shrieked the old man. "'This in my hands is the skin of my son!' As Hreidmar said this, two young men bearing the forehammers of the smithies came in, followed by the thralls. "'Strike these men dead with your forehammers, O Fafnir, O Regan!' their father cried. "'Otter, who used to stay in the river, and whom I changed by enchantment into a river-beast that he might fish for me, has been slain by these men.' "'Peace,' said Odin. "'We have slain thy son, it would seem, but it was unwittingly that we did the deed.' We will give a recompense for the death of thy son." "'What recompense will ye give?' said Hreidmar, looking at Odin with eyes that were small and sharp. Then did Odin, the eldest of the gods, say a word that was unworthy of his wisdom and his power. He might have said, "'I will bring thee a draught of Mimir's well-water as a recompense for thy son's death.' But instead of thinking of wisdom, Odin all-father thought of gold. "'Set a price on the life of thy son, and we will pay that price in gold,' he said. "'Maybe ye are great kings travelling through the world,' Hreidmar said. 
If ye are, ye will have to find the gold that will cover every hair upon the skin of him whom you have killed. Then did Odin, his mind being fixed upon the gold, think upon a certain treasure, a treasure that was guarded by a dwarf. No other treasure in the nine worlds would be great enough to make the recompense that Hreidmar claimed. He thought upon this treasure, and he thought on how it might be taken, and yet he was ashamed of his thought. "'Dost thou, Loki, know of Andvari's hoard?' he said. "'I know of it,' said Loki sharply, "'and I know where it is hidden. Wilt thou, Odin, win leave for me to fetch Andvari's hoard?' Odin spoke to Hreidmar. "'I will stay with thee as a hostage,' he said, "'if thou wilt let this one go to fetch a treasure that will cover the otter's skin hair by hair.' "'I will let this be done,' said old Hreidmar with the sharp and cunning eyes. "'Go now,' said he to Loki. Then Loki went from the house. Andvari was a dwarf, who in the early days had gained for himself the greatest treasure in the nine worlds. So that he might guard this treasure unceasingly, he changed himself into a fish, into a pike, and he swam in the water before the cave where the hoard was hidden. All in Asgard knew of the dwarf and of the hoard he guarded, and there was a thought amongst all that this hoard was not to be meddled with, and that some evil was joined to it. But now Odin had given the word that it was to be taken from the dwarf. Loki set out for Andvari's cave rejoicingly. He soon came to the pool before the cave, and he watched for a sight of Andvari. Soon he saw the pike swimming cautiously before the cave. He would have to catch the pike and hold him till the treasure was given for ransom. As he watched, the pike became aware of him. Suddenly he flung himself forward in the water, and went with speed down the stream. Not with his hands, and not with any hook and line, could Loki catch that pike. How, then, could he take him? Only with a net that was woven by magic. Then Loki thought of where he might get such a net. Ron, the wife of old Aegir, the giant king of the sea, had a net that was woven by magic. In it she took all that was wrecked on the sea. Loki thought of Ron's net, and he turned and went back to Aegir's hall to ask for the queen. But Ron was seldom in her husband's dwelling. She was now down by the rocks of the sea. He found Ron, the cold queen, standing in the flow of the sea, drawing out of the depths with the net that she held in her hands every piece of treasure that was washed that way. She had made a heap of the things she had drawn out of the sea, corals and amber, and bits of gold and silver, but still she was plying her net greedily. "'Thou knowest me, Aegir's wife,' said Loki to her. "'I know thee, Loki,' said Queen Ron. "'Lend me thy net,' said Loki. "'That I will not do,' said Queen Ron. "'Lend me thy net, that I may catch Andvari the dwarf, who boasts that he has a greater treasure than ever thou wilt take out of the sea,' said Loki. The cold queen of the sea ceased plying her net. She looked at Loki steadily. Yes, if he were going to catch Andvari she would lend her net to him. She hated all the dwarfs, because this one and that one had told her they had greater treasures than ever she would be mistress of. But especially she hated Andvari, the dwarf who had the greatest treasure in the nine worlds. There is nothing more to gather here, she said and if thou wilt swear to bring me back my net by to-morrow, I shall lend it to you. I swear by the sparks of Muspelheim that I will bring thy net back to thee by to-morrow, O Queen of Aegir. 
Loki cried. Then Ran put into his hands the magic net. Back then he went to where the dwarf, transformed, was guarding his wondrous hoard. Dark was the pool in which Andvari floated as a pike. Dark it was, but to him it was all golden with the light of his wondrous treasure. For the sake of this hoard he had given up his companionship with the dwarfs and his delight in making and shaping the things of their workmanship. For the sake of his hoard he had taken on himself the dumbness and deafness of a fish. Now as he swam about before the cave he was aware again of a shadow above him. He slipped toward the shadow of the bank. Then as he turned round he saw a net sweeping toward him. He sank down in the water. But the magic net had spread out and he sank into its meshes. Suddenly he was out of the water and was left gasping on the bank. He would have died had he not undone his transformation. Soon he appeared as a dwarf. Anvari, you are caught. It is one of the Aesir who has taken you," he heard his captor say. "'Loki,' he gasped. "'Thou art caught, and thou shalt be held,' Loki said to him. "'It is the will of the Aesir that thou give up thy hoard to me.' "'My hoard! My hoard!' the dwarf shouted. "'Never will I give up my hoard!' "'I hold thee till thou givest it to me,' said Loki. "'Unjust! Unjust!' shouted Andvari. It is only thou, Loki, who art unjust. I will go to the throne of Odin, and I will have Odin punish thee for striving to rob me of my treasure." "'Odin has sent me to fetch thy hoard to him,' said Loki. "'Can it be that all the Aesir are unjust? Ah, yes! In the beginning of things they cheated the giant who built the wall round their city. The Aesir are unjust.' Loki had Andvari in his power. And after the dwarf had raged against him and defied him, he tormented him. At last, trembling with rage and with his face covered with tears, Andvari took Loki into his cavern, and turning a rock aside, showed him the mass of gold and gems that was his hoard. At once Loki began to gather into the magic net lumps and ingots and circlets of gold with gems that were rubies and sapphires and emeralds. He saw Andvari snatch at something on the heap but he made no sign of marking it. At last all was gathered into the net, and Loki stood there ready to bear the dwarf's hoard away. "'There is one more thing to be given,' said Loki. "'The ring that you, Andvari, snatched from the heap.' "'I snatch nothing,' said the dwarf. But he shook with anger, and his teeth gnashed together, and froth came on his lips. "'I snatch nothing from the heap.' But Loki pulled up his arm, and there fell to the ground the ring that Andvari had hidden under his armpit. It was the most precious thing in all the hoard. Had it been left with him, Andvari would have thought that he still possessed a treasure, for this ring of itself could make gold. It was made out of gold that was refined of all impurities, and it was engraven with a rune of power. Loki took up this most precious ring and put it on his finger. Then the dwarf screamed at him turning his thumbs toward him in a curse. The ring with the rune of power upon it, may it weigh down your fortune and load you with evil, you, Loki, and all who lust to possess the ring I have cherished." As Andvari uttered this curse, Loki saw a figure rise up in the cave and move toward him. As this figure came near he knew who it was, Gulveig, a giant woman who had once been in Asgard. 
Far back in the early days, when the gods had come to their holy hill, and before Asgard was built, three women of the giants had come amongst the Aesir. After the three had been with them for a time, the lives of the Aesir changed. Then did they begin to value and to hoard the gold that they had played with. Then did they think of war. Odin hurled his spear amongst the messengers that came from the Vanir, and war came into the world. The three were driven out of Asgard. Peace was made with the Vanir. The apples of lasting youth were grown in Asgard. The eagerness for gold was curbed. But never again were the Aesir as happy as they were, before the women came to them from the giants. Gulveig was one of the three who had blighted the early happiness of the gods. And behold, she was in the cave where Andvari had hoarded his treasure, and with a smile upon her face she was advancing toward Loki. So, Loki, she said, thou seest me again, and Odin who sent thee to this cave will see me again. Lo, Loki, I go to Odin to be thy messenger, and to tell him that thou comest with Andvari's hoard. And speaking so, and smiling into his face, Gulveig went out of the cave with swift and light steps. Loki drew the ends of the magic net together, and gathering all the treasures in its meshes, he too went out. Odin, the eldest of the gods, stood leaning on his spear and looking at the skin of the otter that was spread out before him. One came into the dwelling swiftly. Odin looked and saw that she who had come in on such swift, glad feet was Gulveig who once, with her two companions, had troubled the happiness of the gods. Odin raised his spear to cast it at her. "'Lay thy spear down, Odin,' she said. "'I dwelt for long in the dwarf's cave. But thy word unloosed me, and the curse said over Andvari's ring has sent me here. Lay thy spear down, and look on me, O eldest of the gods.' Thou didst cast me out of Asgard, but thy word has brought me to come back to thee. And if ye too, Odin and Loki, have bought yourselves free with gold and may enter Asgard, surely I, Golveg, am free to enter Asgard also. Odin lowered his spear, sighing deeply. Surely it is so, Golveg, he said. I may not forbid thee to enter Asgard. Would I had thought of giving the man Kvasir's mead or Mimir's well-water, rather than this gold as a recompense." As they spoke, Loki came into Hreidmar's dwelling. He laid on the floor the magic net. Old Hreidmar, with his sharp eyes, and huge Fafnir, and lean and hungry-looking Regin came in to gaze on the golden gems that shone through the meshes. They began to push each other away from gazing at the gold. Then Hreidmar cried out, no one may be here but these two kings and I, while we measure out the golden gems, and see whether the recompense be sufficient. Go without, go without, sons of mine." Then Fafnir and Regin were forced to go out of the dwelling. They went out slowly, and Gulveig went with them, whispering to both. With shaking hands old Hreidmar spread out the skin that once covered his son. He drew out the ears and the tail and the paws, so that every single hair could be shown. For long he was on his hands and knees, his sharp eyes searching, searching over every line of the skin. And still on his knees he said, Begin now, O kings, and cover with a gem or a piece of gold every hair on the skin that was my son's. Odin stood leaning on his spear, watching the gold and gems being paid out. 
Loki took the gold, the ingots and the lumps and the circlets. He took the gems, the rubies and the emeralds and the sapphires, and he began to place them over each hair. Soon the middle of the skin was all covered. Then he put the gems and the gold over the paws and the tail. Soon the otter-skin was so glittering that one would think it could light up the world. And still Loki went on finding a place where a gem or a piece of gold might be put. At last he stood up. Every gem and every piece of gold had been taken out of the net, and every hair on the otter's skin had been covered with a gem or a piece of gold. And still old Hreidmar on his hands and knees was peering over the skin, searching, searching for a hair that was not covered. At last he lifted himself up on his knees. His mouth was open, but he was speechless. He touched Odin on the knees, and when Odin bent down he showed him a hair upon the lip that was left uncovered. "'What meanest thou?' Loki cried, turning upon the crouching man. "'Your ransom is not paid yet. Look, here is still a hair uncovered. You may not go until every hair is covered with gold or a gem.' "'Peace, old man,' said Loki roughly. "'All the dwarf's hoard has been given thee.' "'Ye may not go until every hair has been covered,' cried Marset again. "'There is no more gold or gems,' Loki answered. "'Then ye may not go,' cried Hreidmar, springing up. It was true. Odin and Loki might not leave that dwelling until the recompense they had agreed to was paid in full. Where now would the Aesir go for gold? And then Odin saw the gleam of gold on Loki's finger. It was the ring he had forced from Andvari. "'Thy finger-ring,' said Odin, "'put thy finger-ring over the hair on the otter's skin.' Loki took off the ring that was engraved with the rune of power, and he put it on the lip-hair of the otter's skin. Then Hreidmar clapped his hands and screamed aloud. Huge Fafnir and lean and hungry-looking Regin came within, and Gulveig came behind them. They stood around the skin of the sun and the brother that was all glittering with gold and gems, but they looked at each other more than they looked on the glittering mass and very deadly were the looks that Fafnir and Regin cast upon their father and cast upon each other. Over Bifrost, the rainbow bridge, went all of the Aesir and the Vanir that had been at old Ygir's feast, Frey and Freya, Friga, Iduna, and Sif, Tyr with his sword, and Thor in his chariot drawn by the goats. Loki came behind them, and behind them all came Odin, the father of the gods. He went slowly with his head bent, for he knew that an unwelcome one was following, Gulveig, who once had been cast out of Asgard, and whose return now the gods might not gainsay. End of Part 2 End of Section 14Hey guys, this is Joe at Modern Heathen Man. How are you all today? Hoping you're having a good and uh, great day. Anyway, I wanted to tell you guys about this YouTube channel that I found called Midgard Musings. It's by a man named Jesse and it is incredible. He has new videos uploaded on the channel every Sunday night and he has a live Facebook stream every Sunday at 7pm 
um, Central Standard Time. Midgard Musings' goal is to help build heathen communities around the world with educational content and laid-back fun manner. He values the historical aspect of this path and uses it to help us grow and develop as heathens in modern times. So if you've been a heathen for a while or just brand new to it, definitely check it out. It's something worthwhile. If you'd like to support Midgard Musings by subscribing to youtube.com forward slash Midgard Musings, following on Facebook and purchasing merchandise from the Teespring and Redbubble stores. Redbubble, say that three times. All of which can be found on the YouTube channel video description. Midgard Musing also offers handmade driftwood rune sets for sale, and the purchase of these items helps support the channel. Just to touch base on that a little bit, I actually own one of those rune sets. They are incredibly nice, good feel, wonderful stuff, good power within them. I'm telling you, worthwhile checking out. So please head on over to Midgard Musings, like and subscribe to the channel, and follow on Facebook and on YouTube at facebook.com slash midgardmusings and youtube.com slash midgardmusings. M-I-D-G-A-R-D-M-U-S-I-N-G-S will find you that Midgard Musings. Thanks, guys, and have a great day. Section 15 of The Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin, The Book of Northern Myths, by Parik Kolum. Part 3. The Witch's Heart. Chapter 1. Foreboding in Asgard. What happened afterwards is a shame to the gods, and mortals may hardly speak of it. Gulveig the witch came into Asgard, for Heimdall might not forbid her entrance. She came within, and she had her seat amongst the Aesir and the Vanir. She walked through Asgard with a smile upon her face, and where she walked and where she smiled, care and dire foreboding came. Those who felt the care and the foreboding most deeply were Bragi the poet and his wife the fair and simple Iduna, who gathered the apples that kept age from the dwellers in Asgard. Bragi ceased to tell his never-ending tale. Then one day, overcome by the fear and the foreboding that was creeping through Asgard, Iduna slipped down Yggdrasil, the world-tree, and no one was left to pluck the apples with which the Aesir and the Vanir stayed their youth. Then were all the dwellers in Asgard in sore dismay. Strength and beauty began to fade from all. Thor found it hard to lift Mjolnir, his great hammer, and the flesh under Freya's necklace lost its white radiance. And still Gulveig the witch walked smiling through Asgard, although now she was hated by all. It was Odin and Frey who went in search of Iduna. She would have been found and brought back without delay if Frey had had with him the magic sword that he bartered for Gerda. In his search he had to strive with one who guarded the lake wherein Iduna had hidden herself. Beli was the one he strove against. He overcame him in the end with a weapon made of stag's antlers. Ah, it was not then but later that Frey lamented the loss of his sword. It was when the riders of Muspel came against Asgard, and the Vanir, who might have prevailed, prevailed not because of the loss of Frey's sword. They found Iduna, and they brought her back. But still care and foreboding crept through Asgard, and it was known, too, that the witch Golveig was changing the thoughts of the gods. 
At last Odin had to judge Gulveig. He judged her and decreed her death. And only Gunnir, the spear of Odin, might slay Gulveig, who was not of mortal race. Odin hurled Gunnir. The spear went through Gulveig. But still she stood smiling at the gods. A second time Odin hurled his spear. A second time Gunnir pierced the witch. She stood livid as one dead, but fell not down. A third time Odin hurled his spear. And now pierced for the third time, the witch gave a scream that made all Asgard shudder, and she fell in death on the ground. "'I have slain in these halls where slaying is forbidden,' Odin said. "'Take now the corpse of Gulveig and burn it on the ramparts, so that no trace of the witch who has troubled us will remain in Asgard.' They brought the corpse of Gulveig the witch out on the ramparts, and they lighted fires under the pile on which they laid her, and they called upon Hreisfulger to fan up the flame. Hreisfulger is the giant who on heaven's edge sits in the guise of an eagle, and the winds, it is said, rush down on the earth from his outspreading pinions. Far away was Loki when all this was being done. Often now he went from Asgard, and his journeys were to look upon that wondrous treasure that had passed from the keeping of the dwarf Andvari. It was Gulveig who had kept the imagination of that treasure within his mind. Now when he came back and heard the whispers of what had been done, a rage flamed up within him. For Loki was one of those whose minds were being changed by the presence and the whispers of the witch Gulveig. His mind was being changed to hatred of the gods. Now he went to the place of Gulveig's burning. All her body was in ashes, but her heart had not been devoured by the flames. And Loki in his rage took the heart of the witch and ate it. Oh, black and direful was it in Asgard, the day that Loki ate the heart that the flames would not devour. CHAPTER Two, LOKI THE BETRAYER He stole Frigga's dress of falcon feathers. Then, as a falcon, he flew out of Asgard. Jotunheim was the place that he flew toward. The anger and the fierceness of the hawk was within Loki as he flew through the giant's realm. The heights and the chasms of that dread land made his spirits mount up like fire. He saw the whirlpools and the smoking mountains and had joy of these sights. Higher and higher he soared, until, looking toward the south, he saw the flaming land of Muspelheim. Higher and higher still he soared. With his falcon's eyes he saw the gleam of Surtur's flaming sword. All the fire of Muspelheim and all the gloom of Jotunheim would one day be brought against Asgard and against Midgard. But Loki was no longer dismayed to think of the ruin of Asgard's beauty and the ruin of Midgard's promise. He hovered around one of the dwellings in Jotunheim. Why had he come to it? Because he had seen two of the women of that dwelling, and the rage against the Asunir and the Vanir was such that the ugliness and the evil of these women was pleasing to him. He hovered before the open door of the giant's house, and he looked upon those who were within. Geriot, the most savage of all the giants, was there, and beside him, squatting on the ground, were his two evil and ugly daughters, Gjalp and Gripe. They were big and bulky, black and rugged, with horses' teeth and hair that was like horses' manes. Gjalp was the uglier of the two, if one could be said to be uglier than the other for her nose was a yard long, and her eyes were crooked. 
What were they talking about as they sat there, one scratching the other? Of Asgard and the dwellers in Asgard whom they hated. Thor was the one whom they hated most of all, and they were speaking of all they would like to do to him. "'I would keep Thor bound in chains,' said Gediot the giant, "'and I would beat him to death with my iron club.' "'I would grind his bones to powder,' said Gripe. "'I would tear the flesh off his bones,' said Gjalp. "'Father, can you not catch this Thor and bring him to us alive?' "'Not so long as he has his hammer Mjolnir, and the gloves with which he grasps his hammer, and the belt that doubles his strength.' "'Oh, if we could catch him without his hammer and his belt and his gloves!' cried Gjalp and Gripe together. At that moment they saw the falcon hovering before the door. They were eager now for something to hold and torment, and so the hearts of the three became set upon catching the falcon. They did not stir from the place where they were sitting, but they called the child Glap, who was swinging from the roof-tree, and they bade him go out and try to catch the falcon. All concealed by the great leaves, the child Glap climbed up the ivy that was around the door. The falcon came hovering near. Then Glap caught it by the wings and fell down through the ivy, screaming and struggling as he was being beaten and clawed and torn by the wings and the talons and the beak of the falcon. Gediot and Gripe and Gjalp rushed out and kept hold of the falcon. As the giant held him in his hands and looked him over, he knew that this was no bird creature. The eyes showed him to be of Alfheim or Asgard. The giant took him and shut him in a box till he would speak. Soon he tapped at the closed box, and when Gediot opened it, Loki spoke to him. So glad was the savage giant to have one of the dwellers in Asgard in his power that he and his daughters did nothing but laugh and chuckle to each other for days. And all this time they left Loki in the closed box to waste with hunger. When they opened the box again, Loki spoke to them. He told them he would do any injury to the dwellers in Asgard that would please them if they would let him go. "'Will you bring Thor to us?' said Gripe. "'Will you bring Thor to us without his hammer, and without the gloves with which he grasps his hammer, and without his belt?' said Gjalp. "'I will bring him to you if you will let me go,' Loki said. "'Thor is easily deceived, and I can bring him to you without his hammer and his belt and his gloves.' "'We will let you go, Loki,' said the giant, "'if you will swear by the gloom of Jotunheim that you will bring Thor to us as you say.' Loki swore that he would do so by the gloom of Jotunheim. "'Yea, and by the fires of Muspelheim,' he added. The giant and his daughters let him go, and he flew back to Asgard. He restored to Frigga her falcon dress. All blamed him for having stolen it, but when he told how he had been shut up without food in Gediot's dwelling, those who judged him thought he had been punished enough for the theft. He spoke as before to the dwellers in Asgard, and the rage and hatred he had against them since he had eaten Gulveig's heart he kept from bursting forth. He talked to Thor of the adventures they had together in Jotunheim. Thor would now roar with laughter when he talked of the time when he went as a bride to Thrym the giant. Loki was able to persuade him to make another journey to Jotunheim. And I want to speak to you of what I saw in Gediot's dwelling he said. I saw there the hair of Sif, your wife. The hair of Sif, my wife? said Thor in surprise. Yes, the hair I once cut off from Sif's head, said Loki. Gediot was the one who found it when I cast it away. They light their hall with Sif's hair. Oh, yes, they don't need torches where Sif's hair is. 
"'I should like to see it,' said Thor. "'Then pay Gediot a visit,' Loki replied. "'But if you go to his house you will have to go without your hammer Mjolnir, and without your gloves and your belt.' "'Where will I leave Mjolnir and my gloves and my belt?' Thor asked. "'Leave them in Valaskjalf, Odin's own dwelling,' said cunning Loki. "'Leave them there and come to Gediot's dwelling. Surely you will be well treated there.' "'Yes, I will leave them in Valaskjalf and go with you to Gediot's dwelling,' Thor said. Thor left his hammer, his gloves, and his belt in Valaskjalf. Then he and Loki went toward Jotunheim. When they were near the end of their journey, they came to a wide river, and with a young giant whom they met on the bank, they began to ford it. Suddenly the river began to rise. Loki and the young giant would have been swept away, only Thor gripped both of them. Higher and higher the river rose, and rougher and rougher it became. Thor had to plant his feet firmly on the bottom, or he and the two he held would have been swept down by the flood. He struggled across, holding Loki and the young giant. A mountain ash grew out of the bank, and while the two held to him, he grasped it with his hands. The river rose still higher, but Thor was able to draw Loki and the young giant to the bank, and then he himself scrambled up on it. Now looking up the river he saw a sight that filled him with rage. A giantess was pouring a flood into it. This it was that was making the river rise and seethe. Thor pulled a rock out of the bank and hurled it at her. It struck her and flung her into the flood. Then she struggled out of the water and went yelping away. This giantess was Gjalp, Gediod's ugly and evil daughter. Nothing would do the young giant whom Thor had helped across but that the pair would go and visit Grid, his mother, who lived in a cave in the hillside. Loki would not go and was angered to hear that Thor thought of going. But Thor, seeing the giant youth was friendly, was willing enough to go to Grid's dwelling. "'Go, then, but get soon to Gediod's dwelling yonder. I will wait for you there,' said Loki. He watched Thor go up the hillside to Grid's cave. He waited until he saw Thor come back down the hillside and go toward Gediod's dwelling. He watched Thor go into the house where, as he thought, death awaited him. Then, in a madness for what he had done, Loki, with his head drawn down on his shoulders, started running like a bird along the ground. Grid, the old giantess, was seated on the floor of the cave grinding corn between two stones. "'Who is it?' she said, as her son led Thor within. "'One of the Aesir. What giant do you go to injure now, Asa Thor?' "'I go to injure no giant, old Grid,' Thor replied. "'Look upon me. Cannot you see that I have not Mjolnir, my mighty hammer, with me, nor my belt, nor my gloves of iron?' "'But where in Jotunheim do you go?' "'To the house of a friendly giant, old Grid. To the house of Gediod.' "'Gediod, a friendly giant?' You are out of your wits, Asa Thor. Is he not out of his wits, my son? This one who saved you from the flood, as you say?" "'Tell him of Gediot, old mother,' said the giant youth. "'Do not go to his house, Asa Thor. Do not go to his house.' "'My word has been given, and I should be a craven if I stayed away now, just because an old crone sitting at a quernstone tells me I am going into a trap. I will give you something that will help you, Asa Thor. Lucky for you I am mistress of magical things. Take this staff in your hands. It is a staff of power, and will stand you instead of Mjolnir. I will take it since you offer it in kindness, old dame, this worm-eaten staff. And take these mittens, too. They will serve you for gauntlets of iron. 
I will take them, since you offer them in kindness, old dame, these worn old mittens. And take this length of string. It will serve you for your belt of prowess. I will take it, since you offer it in kindness, old dame, this ragged length of string. Tis well indeed for you, Asa Thor, that I am mistress of magical things. Thor put the worn length of string around his waist, and as he did he knew that Grid, the old giantess, was indeed the mistress of magical things, for immediately he felt his strength augmented as when he put on his own belt of strength. He then drew on the mittens and took the staff that she gave him in his hands. He left the cave of Grid, the old giantess, and went to Gediot's dwelling. Loki was not there. It was then that Thor began to think that perhaps old Grid was right, and that a trap was being laid for him. No one was in the hall. He came out of the hall and into a great stone chamber, and he saw no one there either. But in the centre of the stone chamber there was a stone seat, and Thor went to it and seated himself upon it. No sooner was he seated than the chair flew upwards. Thor would have been crushed against the stone roof, only that he held his staff up. So great was the power in the staff, so great was the strength that the string around him gave, that the chair was thrust downward. The stone chair crashed down upon the stone floor. There were horrible screams from under it. Thor lifted up the seat and saw two ugly broken bodies there. The giant's daughters, Gjalp and Gripe, had hidden themselves under the chair to watch his death. But the stone that was to have crushed him against the ceiling had crushed them against the floor. Thor strode out of that chamber with his teeth set hard. A great fire was blazing in the hall, and standing beside that fire he saw Gediot, the long-armed giant. He held a tongs into the fire. As Thor came toward him he lifted up the tongs and flung from it a blazing wedge of iron. It whizzed straight toward Thor's forehead. Thor put up his hands and caught the blazing wedge of iron between the mittens that old Grid had given him. Quickly he hurled it back at Gediot. It struck the giant on the forehead and went blazing through him. Gediot crashed down into the fire, and the burning iron made a blaze all around him. And when Thor reached Grid's cave, he went there to restore to the old giantess the string, the mittens, and the staff of power she had given him, he saw the giant's dwelling in such a blaze that one would think the fires of Muspelheim were all around it. End of section 15